Well, good morning. It's great to be back here at Christ Fellowship. I send or bring greetings from Redeemer Community Church there in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. God has uh, blessed us with the opportunity to serve there for the last, uh, we're coming up on three years now uh, since we left here. And uh, God has been good to us, as you see. Um, he's been good to us in a lot of ways. One is that we have more children. Uh, and so when we came, some of you that were here at the very beginning, you knew that we went, we were just praying, pleading with God to give us children, and you saw that. Uh, God blessed to give us Karis and Chloe, and now he just keeps on blessing and blessing, and he gives us Haddon and then baby Kayla. Uh, she is uh, two, month, two months yesterday, um, so she's two months old, and so God has been very good to us, um, and we, we praise him for that. But it's really good to be back here. Uh, great to see familiar faces, some new fa- faces, uh, and I look forward to the opportunity of opening God's Word with you once again and proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles, if you have it, or your iPhone, Pete, and turn to the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 18 this morning, Luke 18, and we will be looking at verses 31 through chapter 19 and verse 10 this morning. That will be our focus, Luke 18. 31 through 19, verse verse 10. I don't know about you, but one of my favorite games as a child, and to be honest, still as a parent, is hide-and-seek. Do we have any hide-and-seek lovers out there? It's okay. It's okay to freely admit that you love Uh, hide-and-seek. There's just something that gets the adrenaline flowing about hide-and-seek, isn't there? Uh, Just so exciting. If you were to stop by our house on any given night, uh, you'd probably find four of us enthralled in a rousing game of hide-and-seek. Well, at least that's what the kids think. The kids think of hide-and-seek. Actually, it's more for me of just running around the house, diving behind beds, uh, diving into closets, hiding behind uh, the doors, just trying to scare the living daylights <laughs> out of my kids. So that's what makes it even more fun for them. So you can, you can imagine as I'm diving behind the beds, I can watch what all the kids are doing, and every once in a while they'll walk in, and I can see them very tentatively walk into the room, because they've, they've learned that Daddy just, <laughs> just scares them, and they'll open the closet, and they hope to find me there, stashed between a uh, box of diapers and a mound of toys curled up in the fetal position, but I'm standing behind the door, and they're looking, and they're just creeping the door open, and all of a sudden I just jump out and scream, and they scream, and they go running out of the room, and then it's me trying to find them to see where they've gone. And there's just something thrilling. They love hide-and-seek, playing with Daddy. There's something thrilling about seeking and finding. For all of us, even as adults, there's something uh, delightful about seeking and finding. Uh, even if it's hide-and-seek as adults, or if it's just finding that set of keys that you lost, and you keep trying to look and look. And finally, once you find that set of keys, there's some delight, there's some joy. There's always a certain satisfaction and joy that comes from finding what has been lost. And so in our passage this morning, we actually see a similar thing. Luke gives us a glimpse into what this man from Nazareth, Jesus, is all about. If you know anything about the book of Luke, uh, throughout it, he is showing this man, Theophilus, this young disciple in Jesus Christ, the things about who Jesus is. Uh, So he keeps talking about how Jesus is powerful. He is the the son of God. We see that he is uh, human, and we see him weep. But here, as we come to close to the end of Christ's journey to Jerusalem, we see Luke give us a glimpse into what Jesus is all about. 
You see, Jesus is not just the main attraction in a circus of miracles. No, he has a much greater purpose, a much greater mission to seek and to save the lost. So this morning, we are going to behold here in this passage the divine initiative of our Savior in his mission to seek and to save the lost. And once again, we'll, we'll be struck by who it is that he seeks and saves. We'll see that he seeks and saves a blind beggar and a tax collector, the helpless and the hopeless. Jesus pursues the helpless and the hopeless. Isn't that good news for us this morning? That Jesus pursues, he goes after the helpless and the hopeless. Well, we begin our reading this morning in verse 31 of chapter 18. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things, saying, or this saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people. When they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on the count of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is God's word. Let us thank him for it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your word, you still speak to us today. So even as we've sung this morning in these great songs about your amazing grace and that you do seek and save, we also plead with hearts open and ready that you would show us Christ once again through your word. So Lord, I pray that this morning that it would not be Dan Logan's words, but it would be your words. I pray that this morning that you would affect us once again by this truth that you pursue the helpless and the hopeless. Amaze us once again with your grace. 
Stir us to join you on your mission to seek and save the lost. For your glory and our joy in you and you alone. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, having just confronted a rich young ruler, if you look back in chapter 18, verses 18 through 30, Jesus has said to this ruler that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for someone like him who has an idol of riches to enter the kingdom of God. So having just said that, Jesus now turns his attention away from the crowds and his opponents to his disciples here in verse 31. You see, their long journey to Jerusalem is nearing its end. But what is about to happen in Jerusalem is not just the end of a long road trip. No, it will be the climax of history. So addressing the 12 men accompanying him, Jesus once again reminds them of what is to happen in Jerusalem. He has already told his followers this before in Luke. This is actually the sixth direct reference to Christ's death in this gospel. But these verses here, verses 31 through 33, contain the most explicit details about what is to happen in Jerusalem. Look again down at verses 31 and 34. And taking the twelve, he says to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated, spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Well, there are several elements here in these verses that should catch our attention. First, notice Christ's claim to be both the means and the fulfillment of the promise given by the prophets. For most of us, that phrase and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, it doesn't really strike us as all that surprising, especially this side of the cross. But this really is no small claim. Jesus is claiming to be both the end and the completion of the law and the prophets. All that they had pointed to pointed to Jesus. Paul later affirms this truth when he says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. So this is no small claim. And as we'll see, it surprises his disciples. But also notice that there's a title that's used here by Jesus Christ, Son of Man. It's a title used some 79 times throughout the Gospels. And interestingly enough, it's not a title given to him, but one that Jesus gives to himself. He takes this title, Son of Man, from the seventh chapter of Daniel, which records Daniel's vision of the sweep of world history, which is graphically represented in a series of beasts and culminates in ultimate judgment. You might recall what Daniel 7 says, I saw in the night vision, Daniel writes, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And this kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so you see, The disciples knew this reference back to Daniel. And so when Jesus calls himself the son of man, Jesus was saying in effect, I am the son of man that Daniel was talking about. I am the eternal sovereign king, the one to whom all dominion and glory is given. I am that transcendent being in Daniel's vision and of whom all the prophets spoke of. Again, this is not just some small claim that just 
we should pass by. As we see, verse 34, the disciples can't fully grasp it. But notice verse 32 and verse 33. After just declaring that he is the sovereign king, the son of man, he continues by clearly explaining that he has an impending suffering and death that will come. Those of us who, again, know the whole story might be tempted to just skip over these verses. But for the disciples, these were shocking statements, even scandalous, especially after Christ's initial claim to be the sovereign king, the son of man. You see, in their excitement about a coming king, they had bypassed the truth about a suffering servant. So the approaching death of Jesus is one of the many surprises we as the church now take for granted, but for them it was something theologically beyond their grasp. They just could not understand it. Verse 34 says, this saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what is said. So you can imagine the disciples' confusion. So wait a second, Jesus. You, you're this all-powerful king. Is that all the prophets pointed towards you? But now you're going to be handed over to a group of Gentiles? Then you're going to be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, and then killed? What? That's not, that doesn't add up. Oh, and then to top it all off, you're going to rise from the dead. I got it. No, again, they're, they're confused. You can almost sense it on their, their faces as Jesus is talking. What, what's, what's going on? If we place ourselves in the disciples' shoes, we begin to see how they can't really grasp it. This totally goes against all that they had believed about this coming Messiah King, again, because they had bypass the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Now eventually, Luke will record for us that Jesus explains to the disciples all of these truths in Luke 24. But right now, they're still in the fog. They don't grasp it. They're left scratching their heads. They just can't get it. Even though they had been with Jesus nearly three years at this point, night and day, they're still left in the dark. But their incomprehension, however, sets the stage for what is to happen next. What comes next in Luke's account shows that their spiritual blindness, the spiritual blindness of these disciples, is contrasted with the sight of a blind beggar. If Jesus' followers don't get it, then who, who can? We're left to ask. Well, Luke doesn't leave us asking that question, so he moves on into verse 35. He shifts the reader's attention back to Christ's journey to Jerusalem, and he records that as Jesus comes near to Jericho, he, enter, or he encounters a blind man. Look at verse 35. As he draws near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant, and they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who are there in the front rebuke him, telling him to be silent. But he cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, accompanied by a large crowd of disciples, uh, Jesus takes this pilgrimage to Jerusalem and probably goes along with a number of people who are also going to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus' journey, though intense, because he knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem, is not a serene journey. It's not quiet. 
There's a big crowd around him. One New Testament scholar notes that this passage through Jericho most likely contained both hostile attention and enthusiastic applause. Jericho, the city of roses, was alive that day. There was a lot happening. So hearing all this commotion, this blind beggar on the side of the road inquires what it meant. No doubt he grabs onto the robe of one of those passing by. And as he asks what is meant by this, his request is most likely met with an irritated response. For you, you have to imagine that this beggar had always been there. And as these people walked by, he was always begging for something. A scrap of bread, some money. He was begging and all of a sudden now he says, what's going on? He grabs onto the robe and you can imagine the annoyingness that that must have bent, if annoyingness is a word. Annoy, the annoying that that must have been for these people. And so they say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now leave me alone. Don't worry about it. Don't touch me. You see, in that culture, there was no time for place, no time for people like this beggar, no time for the insignificant of the world. An eye affliction, like he had, was common in Palestine. And so was poverty. And so his condition would, would have forced him to beg and scrounge to sustain his life. This man was helpless, left at the margins of society. And so his typical helpless cries for just that crust of bread have now turned into adamant cries for mercy when he hears who is passing by. Listen to his cry. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He may have heard of the miracles that Jesus had done previously. Maybe he hears about Jesus healing the blind before. We're not exactly sure how he makes this connection, but somehow this blind beggar connects the dot between Jesus of Nazareth to the son of David. Again, Luke surprises us with this statement. It's surprising to all of us as we're reading because so many throughout Luke's account are struggling, even his disciples are struggling to see who Jesus truly is. And now all of a sudden Luke records this blind man has full clarity of vision. He knows who is there in front of him. He recognizes that Jesus is the promised one of God who had the power to heal and so he wants Jesus to exercise that power on his behalf. He believes that Jesus can change everything. But like the little children that were dismissed earlier in chapter 18, verse 15, this blind man is also deemed as unimportant, seen as a nuisance by the crowd. And so his cries for mercy are rebuked. Those at the front tell him to shut up, just leave us alone. And he should. Right? He's just one of the expendables of culture. There's no place or need for such people. Or so the crowd thought that day. But there's no way this man was going to keep quiet. You see, the helpless can't keep quiet when the helper arrives on the scene. See, this man knew he was blind and in perpetual darkness, having never seen the trees blow in the wind. The blue of a summer sky or even his face, the face of his mother. He knew he was helpless apart from something amazing happening. Apart from a divine miracle. And so he cries out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. 
He acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah, shouting it for all to hear. He has no qualms about who might hear. The helper is here. And so even though, as Luke records, Jesus is nearing his journey to the cross, he still hears the cries of the helpless. And he stops. Look at verse 40. And Jesus stopped. Again, just a simple phrase that we often just fly over. But in that culture, that was amazing. This is a beggar who had sat there for many days, crying out for help, and everybody else just goes by. Maybe every once in a while throwing something at him. But Jesus stops. The popular perception was that the blind man was too insignificant for Jesus to pay attention to. But Jesus hears his cry. He seeks the helpless. The crowd was both wrong about the blind man and about Jesus because, you see, there's no one too insignificant and helpless for Jesus. He looks on the heart, not the social status, not the physical appearance. Jesus is a concerned about and has compassion for people like this blind man. And so he stops and he asks, what do you want me to do for you? Well, the blind man simply replies, Lord, let me recover my sight. His answer reveals the same faith that the lepers showed back in chapter 17 when they cried out for mercy. He presumes that Jesus, as son of David, has the power to restore his sight. And so he simply asks for a miracle, a divine miracle. Lord, let me recover my sight. Again, the tension builds within the story and we wonder what's going to happen. But what happens is Jesus does. Jesus, the son of man, the son of David, the Messiah King, he gives sight to the blind. Just as Luke recorded in chapter 4, verse 18, that Jesus was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so Jesus recovers his sight. Not only does he restore his sight, though he affirms this blind man's faith. So not only is this man healed, but his faith is met with salvation. The phrase translated there in verse 42, your faith has made you well, could be literally translated has saved you. His faith was met with divine deliverance and spiritual sight. And it all happened immediately. Imagine what that must have been like for that blind man. The beginning of Christ's sentence, he is totally blind. And by the end, he can totally see. And the first thing he sees is the face of Jesus, the creator of the universe who spoke and immediately the world came into existence. So Jesus restores the sight. He affirms his faith immediately, but also notice what happens immediately. Look at verse 43. And immediately he, this blind beggar, who now sees, recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. He immediately acts out his faith in following Jesus and glorifying God. You see, the blind man saw who Jesus was. Seeing who Jesus truly is always leads to immediately following and glorifying God. This helpless, blind beggar is now the herald of good news. And all the people, when they see it, give praise to God. 
Jesus pursues the helpless. Jesus saves the helpless. Well, moving into chapter 19, Jesus also encounters another person that grabs our attention. This encounter, however, is not with a helpless individual. No, this is a tax collector. He's far from being seen as helpless. But in that society, he was seen as hopeless. You see, tax collectors in that day were also found at the margins of society. They were disdained, if not fully hated, by the culture. They're viewed as despicable and greedy because they would take extra money, extra taxes. And as the chief tax collector and a rich man, Zacchaeus represented the supreme sinner of that day. One author writes, he was the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel. He had the scruples of a modern-day crack dealer. He was filthy rich in the fullest sense of the term and not a likely candidate for the kingdom of God. So if there ever was one viewed as hopeless in this city of Jericho, it was this little Z. No one would have ever guessed that little Z would want to see a man like Jesus. But to everyone's surprise, Luke records he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Now we don't have a reason given to us as why Zacchaeus, this little guy, is going to see Jesus. Perhaps it was because he had also heard of the miracles and wanted to see this circus of miracles that was happening. Maybe it was he was he heard about Levi, another tax collector, and how Christ redeemed Levi, and Levi is now following Jesus. Perhaps it was simply Jesus' reputation that grabbed Zacchaeus' attention. Jesus was known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Evidently, Jesus has a soft spot for people like little Z. Whatever it is, Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. But being despised by society and even being short wasn't going to stop him that day. He was going to do whatever he could do to see Jesus. And so you can imagine what's happening. He's standing there behind the crowds, jumping up and down because he's short. Some of you know what that's like. I won't point out names. You're jumping up and down to see what's, what's going on. And you can sense the crowd again. This is the stained, hated individual. Most likely they're standing there saying, oh, sorry about that elbow to the head, little Z. I didn't really mean to do that. Oh, was that your foot? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I stepped on your foot. Please forgive me. Again, both his, his stature and his status weren't going to help him that day, but they also weren't going to hold him back. And so he takes off, and look at verse 4. He climbs up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus. This picture of this small, hopeless man sitting all alone up in a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus is it's kind of touching, isn't it? Well, not really if you knew who that guy was sitting up in the tree. But whatever our thoughts are about Zacchaeus up in that tree, for him, this was a big deal. You see, going up into that tree was putting his reputation, his dignity on the line. Certainly he would not have wanted the crowd to see him up there in that tree. Again, this was somebody who had a a hard reputation with all those there in that city. Well, he's hiding up there in that tree, and then all of a sudden, to his astonishment, what happens? Jesus blows his cover. Jesus looks up and says, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus must have been terrified by being found. His dignity, his hardcore reputation was now compromised. Would he now be the spectacle of ridicule from Jesus too? You're sure the crowd that day was just waiting for Jesus to let him have it. 
Give it to him, Jesus. He's a crook. He's no good. Let him have it. But once again, the crowd's wrong. Wrong about Zacchaeus. Wrong about Jesus. Jesus surprises everyone, even little Z, by what he says next. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Once again, Jesus stops. Once again, Jesus seeks the outcast, the hopeless. And he identifies with Zacchaeus by calling him by name and further by staying with him in his home. Again, the popular perception was that Zacchaeus was too rotten for Jesus to pay attention to. But friends, Jesus befriends the sinner. Luke records Zacchaeus' response for us. It's, it's quick and joyful. He's all in. For you see, when the hopeless are found by hope, they can't hold back their joy. So Zacchaeus is no longer terrified of what's going to happen. He's ecstatic. And so he jumps down and, and goes along with Jesus to his home. And the reaction of the crowd is quite the opposite of what Zacchaeus is. Look at the reaction of the crowd. It demonstrates the outrageousness of Jesus' action. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You can hear the disgust in their voice. Their complaint is both right and wrong. You see, Zacchaeus is indeed a sinner, as his own remarks will show in the next verse. But he's, they're also wrong, because he's not beyond the touch of God. You see, the crowd expects Jesus to be on their side in snubbing Zacchaeus. But instead, Jesus joins Zacchaeus as an object of their exclusion. Jesus welcomes on himself the snubs of society. Why? Why would he do that? Because his priority is to associate as closely as he can with the lost so that they may come to know the grace of God. See, Jesus seeks, he pursues the helpless and the hopeless to show them the grace of God. That's exactly what happens here with Zacchaeus. Hope enters into the life of this hopeless individual and a radical transformation takes place. Luke records Zacchaeus' words in verse 8 and further shows his faith and repentance. So just like the helpless blind man who immediately recovers his sight and follows and glorifies God, Zacchaeus makes an immediate transformation. He says in verse 8, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He expresses his faith and repentance with overwhelming generosity. Half of his possessions he's going to give to the poor. Those he's wronged will receive restitution at four times the amount taken. That's an incredible amount of generosity from this tax collector. Somebody who had just been taking extra is now giving extra. Both of these actions stand out in light of the cultural expectations of that time. It was considered generous to just give away 20% of one's possessions. And the law, as we, record, as we see it recorded in Leviticus 6 and Numbers 5, only, recorded rest, or only required restoration of the amount wrongfully taken plus a fifth as just a penalty. But you see, that wasn't enough for Zeke. 
See, what had just happened was that this hopeless individual had been found by hope. And so in his joy over Jesus' gracious initiative, Zacchaeus goes far beyond what the law demands. His overwhelming love for God is expressed in his love for others. Again, you see what's happening here in front of us? If we look back in Luke 18, verse 24, 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You see what's happening with Zacchaeus? The camel is going through the eye of the needle. Do you get it? The camel is going through the eye of the needle. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Zacchaeus stands in stark contrast to that rich ruler of verses 18 through 26. This rich man, Zacchaeus, this hopeless tax collector, is now going through the eye of the needle and is now the happy, abundant giver. This is an amazing display of God's grace to all those standing around. And so Jesus affirms what this man is doing. Verse 9 Today, he says, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house, since he, Zacchaeus, is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. See, by faith, Zacchaeus is now the true son of Abraham. For in Jesus he had met the horn of salvation, the one who would give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. He had met the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Messiah. In the judgment of the crowd, Zacchaeus should have been excluded from all the promises of Abraham and his descendants, but not so in Christ's kingdom. Not so in God's economy. As Paul writes, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so Zacchaeus is now a new man. The lost had been found. Once again, an outsider has been turned into an insider by God's grace in a great reversal. The Son of Man, Luke records, came to seek and save the lost. For the joy that was set before him, he would endure, verse 32, being mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, killed. He would endure that to seek And save the lost. So this morning, we've encountered these two individuals, helpless and hopeless, both at the margins, both outcast in society. But here's the good news again Jesus pursues the helpless and the hopeless. By the divine initiative of our Savior, the lost has been found and redeemed. As Luke records earlier, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. You see, our Savior delights in seeking and saving the lost. So friend, you may be here this morning and you identify with one of these individuals. Either the helpless beggar or the hopeless tax collector. 
Maybe you're here identifying most with this blind beggar. You're helpless in every way. You feel powerless over, over life. Shut out, shut down by the crowd. Vulnerable, powerless, you're weak. Is there any help available for the helpless? Maybe you identify most with the tax collector. Hopeless in everyone's eyes and often you believe it for yourself too. There's no way the sin I've done can actually be forgiven. You're beyond repair and so you're despondent, dejected. Is there any hope for the hopeless? No, not for me, you say. That's impossible. But again, Jesus wants us to hear what is impossible with men is possible with God. You see, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek you and me. He came to seek the helpless and the hopeless, the broken and the hurting. Jesus came to seek and save the overwhelmed mother, the homosexual son. He came to seek and save. The Muslim extremist, the Planned Parenthood abortionist, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So is he seeking you? Yes, he is seeking you, the helpless and the hopeless. Will you come? Church, those of you here this morning that make up Christ Fellowship, who have acknowledged your helplessness and hopelessness, the question for us after reading this passage is, will we join Jesus on his mission to seek and save the lost? You see, we are the helpless who have been found by the helper. We are the hopeless who have been found by hope. So will you follow Jesus on his mission like the beggar and glorify God for all to see? Will you in faith give generously out of a changed heart like the tax collector? Will you go with Jesus? The hymn writer writes, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a hopeless one, like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, was totally helpless, but now I see. You see, because of that amazing grace, we can join Jesus on his mission. You can join Jesus on his mission here in some prairie in Madison to seek and save the lost. This city is not beyond Jesus stopping. This city is not beyond Jesus coming and seeking and saving. Jesus pursues your neighbor through you. Jesus pursues this city through Christ fellowship. Why? Because he wants, to, he wants to welcome home lost sheep. He wants to throw them on his shoulder and rejoice that the lost has been found. So will you join Jesus on his mission to seek and to save? Father, this morning, it's my heart cry that we would join you on your mission. How can we not join you on your mission? when we know that we truly identify with the helpless and the hopeless. Each one of us here has a story of how we were either helpless or hopeless in some way. We were broken and hurting. 
But you came and redeemed. You came and you found. You sought out the lost. And you found us. You've taken us who were blind and you've given us sight. You've taken us who were wretches. And you've made us sons and daughters. May that truth motivate us to join you on your mission to seek and save the lost. Wherever it is that we are, proclaiming the excellencies of your great name for your fame and our joy in you.